Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Now, perfect guest, Jonathan Gollop, Credit Suisse Chief, U.S. Equity Strategist, joins us on the year ahead. John, fantastic to catch up with you again, sir. 2021 and the return to normal. The title of your research, sir. What is normal these days? Well, first of all, we're trying to really look out and push the horizon and say, you know, what does 22 look like? And the reason we're focused on on that is if we're trying to forecast where markets are at the end of 21, it's going to be based on the way the world looks at the end of 21, peering into 2022. And at that point in time, you're looking at not an economy that's bouncing off the bottom with this discussion of cyclicals and low quality stocks. You're looking at an economy that's probably growing GDP in the low to mid threes, which will be very good, but actually slowing because we're moving towards a mid cycle kind of environment already. Um, interest rates will probably be a little bit higher, but not dramatically higher. The surprise will be the unemployment rate is expected based on um, Bloomberg surveys. Um, the unemployment rate will will be, you know, moving towards five oh. percent towards full employment because we're going to find that the, the people who've been unemployed are going to be the easiest to put back to work. John, let me go to what you do best. And folks, Golub's reports are exceptionally dense with ratios and margins and all that. Tiffany, just as one example, hammered by this pandemic, just came out with a 200 beat margin expansion. I don't know if they go up or down today. I don't care. John Golub, is that the surprise of next year that corporations adapt and margins are solid or even elevate? Um, yeah, Tom. I mean, if, if you actually look historically, and I know we're getting really in the weeds, um, the the earnings improvement is always on the margin line. It's it's yeah, revenues will be up, uh, you know, a bit. This is obviously a lousy year. Revenues will be back. I don't know, five percent or something like that. But but if we're expecting something closer to twenty percent earnings growth, you're going to get there on the margin line. And I don't know if that's a surprise. It's pretty much what typically um, what typically happens. Jonathan, I know that one of your sectors that you like is financials. And we've seen a yield curve that's tried to steepen and failed again and again in some sort of sustained way. What's underpinning your financials call? And John uh, Farrow has raised this point several times. How much does it hinge on the steepening of that yield curve? Well, I, I think there's a half dozen things that, that are really working here. First of all, the banks have um, reserved for substantial losses. So they're in very good um, situation with uh, with their regulators. Um, secondly, the regulators have forced them to cut back on dividends and buybacks, and that's most likely gonna get released in the second quarter. Because my third point is that the loan losses are not getting worse and they've over-reserved. So you're gonna start to see probably around the second quarter, maybe the third quarter, that they're going to be um, giving more money back to shareholders. And that's going to appear to be a bit of a surprise from a, a valuation perspective relative to, you know, the way they normally trade. The two cheapest sectors are financials and um, and healthcare. So you have all of those things working for you, even if you didn't get any yield curve steepness. Now, if you don't have at least a flat to steeper yield curve, the trade's not going to work. But even five, well, I didn't say five, 15 basis points of steepening over the next 12 months, along with those other positives, is probably all you need for it to be a leading sector. 
John, we've got to talk about the regulatory backdrop as well. So much discussions about Chair Yellen, monetary policy, fiscal policy. The last act of the Fed under Chair Yellen wasn't a monetary policy decision. It was a decision to stick the boot in to Wells Fargo. John, do you have a call for next year, your base case on regulation around this administration? You know, it, it's a good question, and, and, I, and we need to hear more from regulators. I will tell you the question that we're getting um, about um, Janet Yellen in the uh, Treasury role is, you know, <clears throat> what is she going to do to monetary policy, and is she going to do more QE? And the questions are, are kind of bizarre because they're really questions as if she was being appointed uh, to another term as Fed chair, not as Treasury secretary. Her role is going to be different. I, I, I would assume that that there's going to be some real respect for her thinking on those issues, given the role she's been in. But she doesn't control mm -hmm. that, and she's going to. Um, so um, it'll be very interesting to see which levers she um, she looks to push. John, what is your call on the banks on the financials? Yeah, we're, we're we're overweight financials. It's a we have a very strange um, sector call, or at least historically strange. We think that next year is going to end up being another tech and growth year. So we're overweight. What we call tech plus, but we're also overweight um, financials. And it's it's that we think the financials are in a much healthier position or a much more advantageous position as compared to energy, materials, industrials, traditional cyclicals that do really well as the economy is reaccelerating, we think banks are gonna do better because as I mentioned before, yield curve likely steeper, loan um, losses coming in less, regulatory backdrop we think will be uh, reasonable. John, great to catch up with you, sir. Really enjoying the research through the year and especially over the last couple of weeks. Enjoy Thanksgiving if we don't catch up. Jonathan Gollop there of Credit Suisse. Thank you, sir. Now, on New York State as a proxy for America, and why do I say that? Well, it's not about, say, Tiffany and earnings today at Fifth Avenue and 57th Street. It's maybe south of Buffalo, New York, to Yorkville and over to Warsaw. In the fields of western New York, the pandemic is out of control. Kathy Hochul knows his territory called with Governor Cuomo. She is a lieutenant governor and has been a wonderful voice for us over the recent weeks. Kathy, the Buffalo News has my article of the day on the pandemic, and it's real simple. It's not about the beds. It's about the staff in hospitals. How critical is hospital staffing in the Empire State? Well, Tom, thank you for having me back on the show again. That is absolutely the situation we find ourselves in. I was just on a control room call with all the leaders of our hospitals as well as with uh, the leadership of our elected officials throughout Western New York. We can put together as many beds as necessary. We can fill a convention center. We have plenty of PPE. The governor <laughs> insisted that every hospital have a three-month supply of PPE before they could reopen. Here's the situation. We don't have people coming from all over the country to help save New York City and New York State like we did in the spring. We had 30,000 health care workers answer Governor Cuomo's call for help at our darkest hour. We don't have that anymore. In fact, the people we have now, they're exhausted. They're burned out. They're getting sick themselves, and they're pleading. 
nonstop saying, well, do this, please, people, follow follow for our own health. And so it is a, it is going to be a crisis situation if the numbers continue on the path they're on. No doubt about it. And Lieutenant Governor, to bring this back to Fifth Avenue, David Reich of Mount Sinai saying much the same thing the other day. Okay, you've got a Biden administration. There's change in the wind as well. But you still need, as a Democrat, to deal with a Republican Senate, X the Georgia vote that I know is coming up. Do you see any greater of a chance now of you getting the aid you, the MTA, the governor need sooner? Well, the situation is, is that there are Republican senators who represent states that are going through hell right now. I mean, representatives from North Dakota, South Dakota, Iowa, Idaho, they were not willing partners with us in the spring when it was mostly the northeastern states in California that were being hardest hit. Remember Mitch McConnell said no bailout for the blue states? Well, my friend, they are now red, white, and blue states. So it's all over America. And I hope that that will shock the consciousness of the senators as they listen to their Republican governors who are desperate in need of money as well to help compensate them for loss in revenue, for the extraordinary costs they're incurring, having to pay so much for extra overtime and helping you know, all the health care workers that need to be paid. And so there's I think that that could create a different dynamic than we've seen before. I hope it does. It should. And Governor Cuomo, I know, has a very strong relationship with Vice, with President-elect Biden, as, as I do from my time in Congress. So we know that we'll get a good ear out of the White House, certainly the House representatives and the Senate will look really bad, and they have elections coming, yes, in two years again already, and they need to be cognizant of that. This is their time to stand up for their country and their states, and they need to do it by making sure that there's money for not just state and local governments, yeah. but we need PPP again. We have businesses that are being reshut down after reopening all across our state, all across the country, and these poor businesses cannot survive without federal assistance. Kathy, in the meantime, before we get any fiscal support, we are going to probably be getting a vaccine possibly in the next couple of weeks with emergency authorization. What's the plan? Who gets it first in New York? How quickly will it get rolled out? I think your last question is the most important. I, I hope we you know, reverse your question. I do hope we get a stimulus plan before the vaccine is widely available. We don't expect it most there to be mass inoculation of New Yorkers until six months from now. We will start with the healthcare workers, the frontline workers, those who are vulnerable, the senior citizens, communities of color that are having uh, infection rates at much higher than the national average for, for whites. The communities of color, black and brown, are really being harder hit. So we have a plan that Governor Cuomo and our team have been working on literally since July. We have a Nobel Prize winner heading up our efforts to ensure the, uh, the safety of the vaccine along with what's going on with the federal government. But we will get it out to New Yorkers as soon as humanly possible, the second it's available. In fact, the governor has said we'll have the most robust distribution plan in America. That all being said, this is not the save all. This is not allow you to go around without a mask and say, well, I'll get a vaccine, I'll be fine. That vaccine is not going to be widely available for months. And so we're going to have to adapt to it. And we'll need that money before that's available. So, Lieutenant Governor, you've got a plan that you've come up with for the state of New York. Can you walk me through whether there's a plan at a federal level and what the discussions between the state of New York and the federal government actually look like right now? Well, yesterday, uh, I, the governor and I, the governor had his 
asked me to participate in a call with the White House with other governors, and there was a very uh, aggressive plan. We talked about our role in that in terms of the distribution, and they are working on this closely. So we are in partnership with them. We have to be. You know, we're not going to, just because it's still the Trump administration, not work with them. Of course we're going to work with them. It's, it's great to know that they're working aggressively. But we also know that as soon as Joe Biden takes over January 20th, uh, I, I anticipate that there'll be an understanding that the Trump plan as it stands now is focused on, yes, they've identified populations that should get it first, but also their plan does not take into consideration the fact that most people do not have a pharmacy or a doctor readily available to them. Look at our most densely populated urban areas. There's not a CVS, a Rite Aid, or a Walgreens on every corner. You see that in wealthier suburbs. We don't have that in rural areas. So to expect that people are be able to go to a doctor easily and also be able to go to a pharmacy to get it is merely unrealistic. So in New York, we're going to make sure that we engage the churches, the community centers, the senior housing, the congregate setting sites. So we're going to be even drill, drill even deeper down into the distribution that is being offered by the federal government. But our, as I mentioned, our communication was as recently as 24 hours ago. So it's, it's ongoing. Kathy, we appreciate the update. Thank you. Kathy Hochul there, New York's Lieutenant Governor. Right now, what we've tried to do is people our conversations from yesterday afternoon with not only people that know Janet Yellen, have worked with Janet Yellen, but understand the theories and bringing the theories over to policy. No one has done the movement of theory over to policy like Frederick Mishkin of Columbia University. His textbooks are definitive on this, and I might point out hugely accessible. He is a former governor of the Federal Reserve System. Rick Mishkin, I want to go to Chapter 16 of one of your books. I think it's the 47th edition. I can't remember where it's simple. You talk about fiscal policy and government budget. How far removed will that be for Chair Yellen from the everyday of the Federal Reserve? Well, the Federal Reserve is not supposed to focus on, uh, on the budget uh, directly because that's not in their remit. Uh, but clearly it's very important in terms of the ability for monetary policy to do its job. And also particularly in the environment we're in now where interest rates are near zero and uh, monetary policy is less effective as a result, fiscal poly- policy really comes to, to, to the forefront. Uh, Janet understands this very, very well. Uh, that uh, she's uh, uh, said the right things, which are as follows, which is that there really is a need for for uh, fiscal expansion right now. Uh, there's also very importantly a need for cooperation between uh, the Federal Reserve and the Treasury. Uh, you couldn't get it better than than Janet uh, interacting with with Jay Powell, so that's uh, very good. But also, very importantly, which. Uh, Unfortunately, our politicians are not doing enough. Janet has emphasized that although right now we need very expansionary fiscal policy, we have to worry about the long-run budget balance. And that's something that, that really neither right. the Republicans or the Democrats have done. But Janet uh, gets it, uh, and uh, uh, she's she's really a, a terrific person for this job. I couldn't think of a better choice uh, yeah. for this position right now. Professor Mishkin, we've gone from Jacob Lew, who I'm going to call a grizzled political wonk out of Massachusetts, to Mr. Mnuchin, who I'm going to call a Wall Street Hollywood type, with Mr. Trump. And now we go to a hardcore academic, something you'd be familiar with. Are we de-Wall Streeting the job? Are we moving Treasury away from Wall Street? 
In, in this case, I think that's true, but I think the real issue is uh, getting somebody who's competent. It's, it's perfectly reasonable to have a Wall Street person in Treasury if they're if they're really uh, good at understanding policy. Not that's not always the case. Uh, uh, but it, but one of the things that's key about Janet, she's not just an academic. Uh, th this is somebody who's been involved in policy work for a very very long time. Yes, she was an academic for quite a while. I actually I met Janet when she was an assistant professor at Harvard. Uh, well over 40 years ago, we became friends then. So uh, Janet uh, uh, has been in the trenches in almost all the key policy jobs, uh, that she was uh, a governor of the Federal Reserve, uh, that she was uh, uh, also then a president of the Federal Reserve Bank in San Francisco, which is when I interacted with her quite a bit because I was a governor at the time and we used to, to meet uh, uh, periodically. Actually, before every FOMC meeting, we'd always have a meeting either at lunch or dinner together. Uh, and also, the chair, she was the chairman of a chairperson of the uh, Council of Economic Advisors. She really understands policy. She's been involved in that world now, uh, really uh, very, very seriously at the top levels for 20 years. Uh, and she knows her stuff. And she's also not a, a partisan type person. Uh, Jen and I have some different political views uh, uh, that she's to the left of where I am. But actually, on economics, we really never had any big disagreements. She does the analysis carefully uh, and thinks really hard about it and is super well prepared. Uh, and that's exactly what we need right now. Uh, clearly, one of the things that's critical right now is to calm everything down, uh, to get some straight thinking on what to do about the coronavirus pandemic and also uh, uh, how we can support the economy during this next period of the next six months or so. Uh, and Janet is extremely highly qualified to do that. The focus right now, Rick, is on how closely she'll work with the Federal Reserve. And quite clearly, everyone says very closely. For you, how close is too close? So... Too close is when uh, the Treasury tries to dictate to the Federal Reserve and interfering with its independence. Janet very much uh, appreciates the independence of the Federal Reserve, will be strongly supportive of it. Uh, and so in that sense, uh, there's no issue at all. Having strong cooperation, uh, it's always been true, by the way, that the Federal Reserve chair and the, uh, the Treasury secretary meet periodically. I think they always had a breakfast. I can't remember how often it was, but I think at least once a month or maybe once a month, they would have a breakfast yeah. together. That's actually critical because monetary and fiscal policy do interact. On the other hand, what you don't want is where uh, 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 the, the Federal Reserve independence is, is, uh, is challenged. Now, that's not going to happen under a Biden uh, administration. Trump was, was really awful on this, uh, that his criticisms of Jay were just brutal, uh, you know, mean, call him loco, saying Jay's an idiot and so forth. Uh, that's done. Uh, uh, Biden understands uh, what was done during the Obama administration, but also uh, before that, uh, that the Fed works best and the economy works best when the Fed is independent of day-to-day -day interference by the politicians. That will continue. Janet is somebody who strongly believes in the independence of the Fed. She's not somebody who tried to dictate to Jay Powell. Instead, uh, what you'll have is cooperation, which is exactly what's needed. Although you'd have to say, Rick, in the back end of 2018, the president might have had a point when it came to judging and feeling out the market a little bit. We can put that to one side and maybe touch on that another day. Well, I want to talk about policymaking with you. Look, you. I had a feeling right you'd want to jump in. Go on, Rick, please. Yeah. Please go on. You could be right that, uh, uh, that I actually advocated easier policy uh, during, during, during this period uh, than the Fed, Fed was uh, uh, pursuing. But uh, the issue is not the policy. It's the issue of interference which then can actually cause problems. So uh, pushing the Federal Reserve to do expansionary policy can lead to rise in inflation expectations, which would be very damaging. So uh, the way yeah. you talk, it's not just what you do, but the way you talk and the pressure you put can actually be very damaging. And in fact, 
Um, most presidents before uh, Trump, since particularly since the Clinton administration, have understood that it's, including George W. Bush, understood that uh, leaving the Fed alone actually helps promote uh, a good, strong economy. Uh, and, uh, uh, but that doesn't mean that the Fed is always right. Uh, they do make mistakes. Uh, and with a crystal ball, we could always do better. But the key point is, uh, let them do their job. They've got a job to do their technical people to do it. Janet fully understands that. Rick, when it comes to making policy at the Federal Reserve, those decisions are grounded in economics. When it comes to making policy in the Treasury, it's economics and it's politics too. And I just wonder, Rick, when you start to think about trade, if you have a position on trade in the Federal Reserve, is your position on trade exactly the same when you are running the Treasury? I think Janet certainly is going to be pro uh, 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 free trade in an appropriate way. And particularly, very important is if somebody's not playing by the rules, uh, you want to be able to, to deal with them, but you don't then uh, 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 abuse your allies in that process. So uh, if you really want to deal effectively with China, you don't slap crazy tariffs on the Europeans, which is what's been done uh, under, under Trump. And this has been very damaging to our ability to actually get uh, a more even-handed uh, trading situation that will be beneficial to the U.S., and particularly with China. So I, I don't think that the positions... Uh, it's very true that, that a treasury position is much more political, and so you have to deal with those issues. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, uh, very almost all economists, by the way, very few, and, and those are the few that, uh, that worked in the Trump administration, uh, very few think that, uh, that trying to close down our borders is a good idea. Uh, Janet is, is very much in the mainstream on that. I think it will be very helpful in crafting a much better trade policy under the Biden administration. Meanwhile, Rick, on a domestic level, there is a question of how she is willing to run the economy hot in tandem with the Federal Reserve, perhaps giving ammunition from the Treasury. And I'm wondering, from your perspective, are you surprised that the market hasn't priced in a higher longer term inflation rate on the heels of Janet Yellen's selection based on what we know and based on her comments? So I think the answer is uh, uh, they haven't, and I think there's good reasons not to. Janet's uh, very, very good on this. I had a lot of interaction with Janet when I was the governor at the Federal Reserve. Uh, uh, both of us were strong advocates of controlling inflation and inflation targeting, uh, and uh, uh, that uh, Janet gets that. The key issue is that right now we're in a very different environment. It's actually a, a remarkable environment for somebody who's been a, uh, you know, been a professor for now over 40 years and a monetary economist which is the big problem of central banks is not that inflation is too high, it's too low. And so at this particular environment, uh, it makes sense to pursue expansionary policy, uh, uh, both monetary and fiscal. There, there, by the way, there is a time when that could change. And in fact, having a very strong commitment to keeping inflation under control is important. Uh, I think that the Federal Reserve has, has moved to a, a procedure of so-called average inflation targeting which could be beneficial, but has not been articulated in a way that I think is, is as helpful as needs to be uh, to make sure that the commitment is, is as strong as ever. But Janet has always had a very strong commitment to controlling inflation. There's no doubt about that. Uh, her, her statements, her policies, uh, when she was chair of the communications committee uh, at the Federal Reserve uh, when I was there. Uh, so uh, the issue here is not that uh, they should worry about too high inflation, but we do want inflation to get back up to 2%. And Janet understands that, and, uh, and uh, uh, Jay Powell understands that. So that's why I don't think the markets yeah. need to be afraid of Janet on this. Rick, come back soon. Always great to catch up, sir. Frederick Miskin there, the former Federal Reserve Board Governor. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. I break a cardinal rule. 
I have a cardinal rule that I never talk about a book until it's released. I break that now. Cass Sunstein is at Harvard Law. You know I loved his book, Impeachment, which never once mentioned uh, Donald Trump. There is too much information. And yes, he writes for Bloomberg Opinion. But there will be a book next year. It's already must read and it's not even written. The book is Noise with a gentleman from Princeton, Mr. Kahneman, 70-inch Cass Sunstein. Cass, wonderful to hear about this book of 2021. How are we going to get ourselves away from what we here at Surveillance struggle with every day, our addiction to the noise? How are we going to do that? Okay, well, let's make a distinction, shall we, between noise like high volume, lots of stuff. How do you sort it out? The book that is out, Too Much Information, is really about that. Yes. The book Noise is about uh, signal versus noise, meaning there's just so much variability. So if doctors are asked, do you have COVID-19? One doctor will say yes. Another doctor will say, I don't think so. If you ask one grader whether the paper gets an A, the the grader will say yes. And another will say, no, it's a B minus. That's the kind of noise that we're worried about. And it's a source of pervasive unfairness in the criminal justice system, in the welfare system, with permits and licenses. It's also a source of really high costs for companies when two people who are supposed to make the same decision, one says yes, the other says definitely no. But Cass, so much of this is about the strange word from another time in religion called grace. And that grace is about uncertainty and understanding that we live within uncertainty. Anyone, those that agree with Mr. Trump and disagree with Mr. Trump would say he majored in certitude. It was he knew what he was talking about. How do we escape our certitudes that are wrapped around too much information and our certitudes of noise? Well, there's a great judge with a crazy name, a learned hand. Was this a prank by his parents who named him Learned? But he kind of fulfilled the prophecy of learnedness and learned a lot. And Learned Hand said this in, during World War II, the spirit of liberty is that spirit which is not too sure that it is right. And uh, that's kind of perfect because you can be sure that you're right, as you know, Democrats and Republicans often are, but they're sure. But things go sour if they're too sure that they're right. So there should always be a voice in a democratic society saying, you know what, the people who might consider the other side, they might be right. And if that voice you let in your head, you become calmer nicer, and that savage part of the human spirit kind of uh, dissipates. This makes sense, and at the same time, you're walking a fine line as we sort of infringe on the idea of freedom of speech and freedom of decision-making. And I think that there probably would be a large swath of the nation that would say, this is the problem, that academia, which tends to be more liberal, wants to weed out things that's wrong and not necessarily let people think their own thoughts. And this is really brought to the fore with Twitter and Facebook's recent filters on President Trump's tweets, as well as other uh, certain uh, information that's been disseminated. How do you walk this line? How do you create a filter that is fair and gives the impression of fairness to people looking for independence and freedom? It's a great question. So let's think of three different categories. One category, which my Too Much Information book, that's not a very uh, likely title for a book, by the way. I'm not sure that's a best-selling 
title. But the idea behind too much information is first, the government's taking too much information from us. So it is imposing 11 billion annual hours and paperwork requirements on the American people. It may be nurses, it may be doctors, it might be patients, it might be people who want to build things, and they are being hammered by paperwork requirements. This is especially bad in a period of COVID-19. So that's not a free speech issue. It's an issue of imp imposing uh, burdens, which are often like walls between the American people and things that they have a right to. The second thing is disclosure of information that's mandatory. So if you get a medicine, it might have seven pages of side effects information, which you'll never read. Or if you get a mortgage, you might be drowning in stuff. Or if you buy a product at the grocery store, there might be a ton of things there which are so complicated in terms of information mandates that you're not going to benefit from them. So information mandates is a second thing, which is often excessive and often kind of clueless, and that is not a free speech issue. Well. Then there's a third thing, which is, you know, Twitter and Facebook having warnings and uh, disclosures as part of their product. That's actually technically not a free speech issue. In fact, technically not, because Twitter and Facebook aren't governed by the First Amendment because they're not government. And that's how our Constitution was set up mm -hmm. and itself a big uh, positive in terms of freedom that a private social media outlet doesn't have to worry about the things the government has to worry about. Now, having said that, there are free speech issues in the non-technical sense that it's completely fair to discuss that private actors often uh, raise. Uh, Kess Sunstein, thank you so much. Just can't say enough about too much information and to come next year with Professor Kahneman of Princeton Noise uh, as well. Kess Sunstein at Harvard, uh, Harvard Law. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.